Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash sacred text today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp.com slash sacred text. Chapter 17, The Man with Two Faces. It was Quirrell. You, gasped Harry. Quirrell smiled. His face wasn't twitching at all. Me, he said calmly. I wondered whether I'd be meeting you here, Potter. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is the last chapter of book one of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. This went so fast, Vanessa. I can't believe how quickly we moved through this book. Well, we made a commitment a really long time ago that we are going to end every book on the theme of love. And this was taught to me as an idea around preaching by Dan Smith, who trained oh, really? me how to preach that you should end with the best news possible and the best news possible is love. Oh, that's, I like that. So, Vanessa, you have a story about love for us. What's your story? So, as I've talked about on the podcast before, when I was like 27-ish years old, I was physically shaken by one of my bosses when he was mad at me. And I was shaken in front of several people. But I was encouraged by my direct supervisors not to report it to HR. The man who shook me was a chief officer. I was an associate level person at the time. I was one of the lowest rung people at the company. He was one of the highest rung people at the company. And all of the intermediary people sort of between us were like, look, this happens. Bosses do bad things. These are the things that happened to me when I was in my 20s. Like, suck it up. It's, you know, part of the game that you have to deal with. And it was two of my good friends who were standing with me when I was shaken. And one of them was my friend Kimbo. And he, in the weeks after this event, as the man who shook me was trying to get me fired and was treating me worse and worse, Kimbo finally said to me, look, if you're not going to report this to HR, I am. I don't want to work in an organization that treats people like this. And him saying that really just changed my whole outlook on the event. 
I didn't want to be the problem. I didn't want people to dislike me as a troublemaker. And Kimbo reframed this as me not being a troublemaker, but instead me not only advocating for myself, but advocating for the kind of organization that this company should have been. And so I reported it, and the man who shook me ended up getting fired. The organization, I will say, still effectively demoted me, and my being shaken was the beginning of the end of my working at that company. But I still look back at that moment when I went into the director of HR's office as a real moment of self-love that with a friend's help, I was able to see that advocating for myself wasn't me being a pain or whiny, but was actually saying I have integrity and I deserve to not be assaulted at my job. And my friends like Kimbo deserve to work at an organization that doesn't do things like that. And I thought about that story today on the theme of love because I think what I struggled to do at 27, Harry is doing at age 11. He's standing up to a professor who's trying to manipulate him into Voldemort. And he just has so much integrity of I know what I deserve and I know what the world needs to be. And I want to really celebrate Harry for that in this chapter. Yeah, that's a, it's such an illuminative story, Vanessa. And I'm really grateful that you're sharing it again because it's an important one. And I know it's one that describes a really difficult memory for you. But the reason I think it's so illuminating here, especially in light of this chapter and of Harry Potter, is because it really demonstrates like how love is relational, right? Like you started the story talking about self-love and how self-love can also be be a manifestation of love for others, right? Like by loving yourself, that actually became the way that you could take care of Kimbo and others at the organization, right? And even what Kimbo said to you was, if you don't want to do this for you, I'm going to do it for me. Like there was self-loving Kimbo statement too, which was like, I don't want to work at a place which lets this stuff slide for me and for you, right? Yeah. I think when we tend to think about love, we think of, oh, do I sacrifice myself for the other? Do I love the other more than myself, right? And what your example, and I think ultimately these books show is that like the self is relational. I mean, you, you might've kept a career at this organization. Had you not done this, some might be able to overlay a self-sacrificial narrative onto your ruining your career at this organization for the sake of making the organization better or holding this man accountable. But I think that's too simple a read because you were doing something else. You're also asserting something for yourself. You're also doing something for Kimbo. You were also saying something about what the organization was and what you wanted it to be. Yeah. And so it just really complicates the picture of what it means to stand in for the other, to take care of others, for others to take care of you. And it's a really great way into this chapter and to the end of this book. And it it didn't feel like self-sacrifice, right? right? It actually felt like I grew two inches in that moment. Matt, it's your last 30-second recap in this book. Yeah. Tell us about the arc. Do you feel like you've become calmer? How quickly were you thinking about it this morning? I did not think about it this morning much at all. I had a restful and easy sleep. This no longer disrupts my my morning schedule. I've learned to be a lot less stressed the weeks you go first. I think that's part of it. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, at the beginning, this is the biggest difference. At the beginning, I was no more or less nervous whenever I went. I didn't realize that I got to cheat off the person that went first. <laughs> right? Got it. And now I, <laughs> now I realize that I can. So it, it's much easier today since you're going first. All right, I'll count you in. Three, two... One, go. 
So Harry arrives and it's Quirrell who's the bad guy and he doesn't have a stutter and he's like, Harry, give me the stone. And Harry's like, I don't know where the stone is. And they have this weird combination, this weird conversation with the mirror of Erised. Also, he um, binds Harry with these ropes that he conjures out of nowhere. And then it turns out that Voldemort is in the back of Harry's head and uh, <laughs> Quirrell's head. And he does his big baddie speech and then Dumbledore comes and saves Harry. And there's a, um, a lot of chocolate in the hospital wing and Dumbledore explains everything. It wasn't my best. You know, you've been on vacation. It's fine. I think I was tempted to do it in German. It's true. That's a thing, right? That's right. I think had you done it in German, it probably would have been a smooth 30 seconds, right? You're just reacclimating to English. Yeah. I, I totally understand. Okay, last 30 second recap of book one. Matt Potts, on your mark, get set, go. So it's not Snape, it's Quirrell. And Quirrell is very mean and very confident suddenly. And he, the mirror is there too. And they realize the stone is in the mirror. And Harry realizes he can't reveal what he sees in the mirror. And then Voldemort is revealed out of the back of Quirrell's head. And then there's a big struggle and Harry falls asleep. And then he wakes up and Dumbledore explains everything. And then Harry and then Hermione and Ron come. And then they go to the, the big dinner and Slytherin won. But no, Slytherin didn't win. Gryffindor won. And then they all go back home and uh, Harry feels better about returning to, to, to whatever his home is. Where is he? Where does he live? Some lane. Privet, Privet Drive Privet, with Privet the Drive. Privet Drive. I said lane again. Why do I, why do I obsess about lanes? Vanessa, one of the things that I really noticed in the chapter this time reading through it was sort of the relationship between love and power. At the beginning of the chapter, Quirrell says to Harry, you know, I, I've given up on all that nonsense about good and evil. There's just power. Right? And I think as readers of the story, we're not meant to agree with Quirrell, right? We want to believe that there is something like good and evil. And in fact, that so much of the full seven book arc of the Harry Potter series is about the fact that good and evil really matter, right? And I, I want to believe that. But what I want you to help me with is like, I'm not sure this chapter convinces me that Quirrell's wrong. I mean, if Quirrell's wrong, it's that he thinks that something else is more powerful than love. But what the chapter tells us is that, oh, yeah, it is only about power. Just that love is more powerful than these other things. And I'm not sure I I like that or agree with it. I, what do you think about this? Yeah, it's such a good question. And we know that a mother dying when a baby is one, regardless of how she died, if he doesn't know about that, if he doesn't feel love in his childhood— he is at a million disadvantages in his life, right? And yet the beauty of the Harry Potter books is that actually there's magic to that love, right? And that there's like a sprinkling of fairy dust that gets placed on this child and he is encrusted somehow with a shield charm around him because of it. I think maybe what the book is saying is that if magic existed, then love would be the most powerful thing. But yeah, I agree with you that it is still about power within the paradigm of this book. But I do like that the book is saying if we could somehow crystallize love or liquefy love and drink it, it would be the most powerful force on earth. But can you say more why you don't like the idea that of love as power? Because I think that sometimes love actually does mean giving up power, right? If you think in a structural way, there's no version of a more loving world without people in power choosing to just give it up without any advantage, without saying like, I'm going to give it up because love is actually the more powerful thing and it's going to work to my benefit, right? I mean, this is something I worry about in my own Christian tradition. I think that oftentimes 
love is just posited within Christianity as just like the better magic trick than all the other magic tricks, <laughs> right? Or or the more powerful tool to get what you actually want than yeah, all the yeah, other yeah. tools, right? When I think in some cases, love might be actually saying, oh, I have power that does not belong to me. And I really do need to just give it up and give up the benefits that come with it for the sake of fairness, for the sake of loving somebody else. I mean, again, your story is this really illuminating story about the relationship between power and also the constraints of it. I mean, when you are a disempowered person, when you're a young woman in a patriarchal culture and in a an organization that does not want to support you, right? Like you have limited options and making a choice for yourself or for others is going to mean giving up something like you give up a career there, right? But it can still be self-love and it can still be the right thing and all this. You know what I mean? It just, it seems to me that Rowling, or at least the novel, is trying to set up Quirrell as wrong when he says it's not about good and evil, it's about power. And wants to suggest that love is this alternative to power. But I wonder if yeah. what this chapter is actually saying is, no, love is just a more powerful yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. And if power is still like the coin of the realm, if power is still the, the brass ring that we all should be aiming for, then I have some worries. Right. I have some like moral concerns about whether that form of love can be the thing which leads us to a more just world. But I also think that, you know, this is one of the reasons why it benefits reading these novels again, because now I'm starting to recognize how and why this book needs the other books. Because I think what happens later on is that Harry and the other children at Hogwarts are able to come into a different relationship, not just with love, but also with what love is and with power. And I think that complicates the lesson at the end of this book in a way I appreciate. I actually think a lot of that complication happens in this chapter, though, yeah. Matt. I yeah. think that, first of all, the greatest act of love, right, this love that is protecting Harry, was about sacrifice, right? Voldemort tells us that he said to Lily, if you step aside, I won't kill you. Yeah. And Lily is like, I don't care. I choose my one-year-old child over myself, and I am someone who really struggles with the idea of martyrdom, but... I, I do think, yeah. right, like that's not at all about power. That was very meaningful because it saved Harry, but also it was not meaningful to Voldemort, right? It was like an afterthought to him. Yeah. Yeah. And as I think about it, you know, Harry doesn't know the end of the story when he's engaged in this wrestling match with Quirrell, right? And he's actually not right. doing it because he wants to hurt Quirrell. He doesn't think he's going to survive this encounter. He's doing it for for Hermione back there and for Ron, yeah. who he hopes is still alive back there and for everybody else at Hogwarts. At that point, he has kind of given up and not even like a self-sacrificial way, like, oh, my death will be the, it's just like, I have to do this. <laughs> like this is, I, so I think you're right. The chapter itself does provide some of that complication and the power that his love has when he's employing it in this confrontation with Coral, it's not a power that he comprehends or trusts in. It's just the best tool he has at the moment to try to protect the people around him that he's come to love, right? And so, like you, I think I really worry about the language of sacrifice, right? And so everything I say about love being willing to give up power, I'm really grateful to be in the conversation with you because you always remind me how much the Christian tradition especially, but also how much our Western culture in general kind of valorizes sacrifice, especially when it's placed upon people who don't deserve suffering, right? Right. Matt, I'm wondering if you can help me. I know that I struggled with this the last time we covered this chapter, but Quirrell and Voldemort's relationship, I'm not sure if the text really wants us to know whether 
Quirrell actually believes what he's saying or yeah. if Voldemort attacked him and attached himself to his head and brainwashed him. But I'm wondering if you have a thought on that. And then I also, I am not an expert on abusive relationships, but I've had some training on it. And Quirrell really sounds to me like a victim in an abusive relationship, right? Yeah. Like sometimes I mess up and my master has to punish me. And so I'm wondering just things that feel like love can often be something very different. And not all love is equally healthy or good, right? Like yeah. there is love that metastasizes into something awful. And so I'm just wondering if we can use this moment of Coral and Voldemort to talk a little bit about that. I think this is a really great question. And I had the same thoughts reading the chapter. The two things I think I want to say about it. The, the first is that, you know, I want to point back to your original story, the story you led this episode with, and also the kind of takeaway from it that like there is this relationship between self-love and other love because the self is relational, right? Like it's if you focus too much on one or the other, then something is lost and the love itself loses its power to use that language again, right? And I mean, whether or not we want to use the language of an abusive relationship, it's clear here that there's not a lot of self-love with Quirrell. For the sake of power that he thinks that Voldemort's going to give him, maybe, or for some other reason, he is willing to erase himself. I would want to wonder, like, whether that can really be called love, right? I mean, within the Christian tradition, I keep bringing up the Christian tradition, it's love your neighbor as yourself, right? Implied within loving your neighbor as yourself is that you love yourself. You actually cannot love your neighbor unless you love yourself, and you don't love yourself unless you're loving your neighbor. Like, they're intertwined in this fundamental way, and when Quirrell's self-love collapses... I don't know if I want to call it love anymore, right? Yeah. On the other hand, that doesn't mean I want to blame him because I also really read him as a victim in this chapter. And yeah. I think that's one of the reasons why I started worrying about like the power of this love to so deeply wound and hurt Coral. Because I see Coral as like a, a victim. I think he's possessed by this, this incredibly powerful demonic force, which exploits his body and is willing to destroy him. And... Harry's only recourse to prevent Voldemort is to hurt this same person and that same body, which does not have control over itself, right? And then that eventually, like, perishes, even though Voldemort survives, right? And so I see Quirrell as a victim here. And I think if there's anything I would have wanted more out of this chapter, I wish there had been one moment of mourning for, for Quirrell, who fell victim to this incredibly powerful force and who they were not able to save. So, Matt, we would obviously be remiss if we didn't talk about Snape. Dumbledore and Harry have this conversation in which Dumbledore does a couple of things about Snape, right? He, first of all, he, like, constantly insists that Harry respect Snape. Harry keeps calling him Snape, and Dumbledore keeps saying, Professor Snape, Harry, Professor Snape. Which I think that there's something interesting potentially to be said about, like, even if you don't intuitively love someone, you should be showing them respect. Mm -hmm. But as someone who's at least mildly anti-establishment, this iteration of that, I'm like, okay, like, do we have to call everyone professor? Whatever. He basically admits to Harry, like, Snape does not like you, but that doesn't mean that he won't do everything he can to save you. Coral also says a version of that to Harry. And I know that this is something that you really love about Snape. And so my question for you is, do you think that that is a kind of love, right? My answer to not 
you know, make you do all the work is that, yes, right? Like you can love children even when you don't like them, right? And that it's actually the responsibility of an adult and especially of a teacher to love children even when you don't like them. And the wrong move is to be so abusive all the time in the classroom, but he is absolutely doing the loving while not liking thing here. But I'd love to hear your thoughts. I think Snape is a really complicated question because of how abusive he is towards Harry in the classroom. I mean, I think you can love and not like somebody, but if you're consistently mean to that person, even if you're working upon their existential behalf, I'm not sure that counts as (laughs) love, right? I mean, yeah, (laughs) you're trying to protect Harry from being murdered by an evil wizard, but you're also really cruel to him, right? So It's a low bar. It's a low bar, yeah. I actually want to turn back to your example of like, Dumbledore insisting that Harry call Snape, Professor Snape, right? There's this interesting book from a few years ago called Ritual and Its Consequences. The subtitle is An Essay on the Limits of Sincerity. One of the examples they give about how ritual can be a more successful expression of affect than sincerity is in the introduction of the book. They're like, take a family of four, two parents, two children, a dog, right? And they said, in this family, everyone's polite to each other. So they say at the table, please pass potatoes. Could I have that hairbrush, please? Would you mind taking out the garbage, right? And one of the things they pointed out is like, it's not like in every moment of saying those words, please pass the potatoes, they're not, or thank you for passing the potatoes. They're not saying like, I deeply, deeply love you. And therefore (laughs) I ask you, please, will you, right? It's actually just a ritual. Like they don't actually feel anything deeply in the moment they're saying thank you, or they're saying please. But by being the sort of people who constantly treat each other with respect, They create a loving family, right? And I think that there is something to that with Dumbledore saying, call him Professor Snape. Not because I think that you are going to start to love Professor Snape all of a sudden, but because like just going through the motions of treating one another with respect actually generates respect, right? And it actually, it actually does some work. And this is, to borrow a phrase, one of the powers of ritual, right? I guess this is the long road to your answer to your question about Snape. To some degree, I don't care about how Snape feels about Harry. I think his job as an adult is to deal with that and then treat Harry well. And he does the bare minimum. He tries to protect his life, but he also tries to make his life miserable. So the gap between intention and behavior is really important. If someone tells you that they love you, but they treat you with cruelty, at some point that stops mattering. Their their feeling or their intention stops mattering as much as the way that you're, you're treated, right? We can also like like scale that up into social problems, right? Like I don't intend to be white supremacist or intend to be racist or intend to carry privilege. But if you do, then you do. And that's what you actually have to reckon with is the fact that you do, not whether you intend to or not, right? I think that in its own kind of very minor way is what Dumbledore is talking to Harry about when he's correcting him with regard to how he references Snape. But it's also what you're talking about when you're like, Can we let Snape off the hook or not? I don't think we can. We can acknowledge that he's sacrificing a great deal in order to protect Harry in a very basic way, but he's also cruel and abusive. Yeah. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. So Matt, I also just want to, I just have to point out the like hilarious turn of events at the end of this chapter where everybody apparently is thrilled that Slytherin has lost. And there's this, I don't know if we'd count it as love, like Ravenclaw and Hufflepuff are so happy that Gryffindor won just because it means that Slytherin lost. And I mean, I guess to some extent, it's just like one of the potential opposites of love is disdain. And there are systems that we can set up in the world that allow us to be more or less loving to one another. And the housing system fails. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> at this magic of love. I was just reading an article about how homeownership creates less neighborliness, right? And that actually certain associations or affiliations among homeownership can recreate that neighborliness. And so I, I just really believe that there are structures that can create the rituals of love, like you were talking yep. about, right? And so I just, like, Dumbledore change the pedagogy (laughs) it's so bad in a couple of books a freaking hat is going to be like this is bad pedagogy yeah i think you're absolutely right like certain institutions can cultivate cultures of love but most institutions are not starting from zero they're dealing with histories and legacies that are difficult to change and traditions and assumptions that take time to adjust so like in our actual lives the institutions that we inhabit are not ones that we can create from nothing and then try to make loving, we actually have them already and have to try to change them into more loving things, right? And so who knows how ancient the house system is? Well, I guess we do know how ancient the house system is. It's as ancient as Hogwarts. Right. And so changing that culture is hard. That doesn't mean that Dumbledore or any of the teachers get a pass for for fostering the kind of competition that, that diminishes love. But you can also see the challenge. Can I actually ask you one question about the very, very end of the book? Sure. Like you mentioned the like the fairy dust of love at the beginning of our conversation and how Lily's loving protection of Harry had some lasting effects so that Quirrell could not harm him here. 
I mean, I'm thinking about him going back to the Dursleys this summer, because at the end of this chapter, he does not seem to dread returning to Privet Drive as much as one would expect. And I think the only way I can describe it is that it's because, like, he's had the fairy dust of Ron and Hermione sprinkled over him from a year at Hogwarts. I mean, what do you what do you think about the ending? I mean, I think some of it is really very 11 and totally fair of, like, I have this power over them, right? Like, they don't know that I can't do magic. And we see Dudley is scared. Yeah. He's scared to be around all of these wizards because his only interaction with a wizard has required surgery for him. So, like, yeah. Harry is a little bit, you know, trading with some ill-gotten gains here. Yeah. I do think that these relationships will sustain him. But I also think that this new piece of information that his parents loved him and that there is a reason why he's at the Dursleys yeah. also helps. Yeah. I think often knowing why you're suffering can really just make the suffering more bearable. And I want to be very clear that it, I'm not saying that it makes the suffering worthwhile, but he knows now that it's not that Dumbledore forgot about him at the Dursleys. It's not that Dumbledore didn't think it would be bad at the Dursleys. The wizarding world didn't forget about him. His parents didn't forget about him. There's a magical need for this time. And I I don't think it makes it okay, but I think I do think it helps. Yeah, I think that's right, Vanessa. I think also Harry has just, he knows better where he comes from. He's seen his family. He's seen his ancestors. He knows he's a wizard, right? When he goes back to Privet Drive, he he's never felt like he belongs there, but now he knows where he belongs. And so right. it's doesn't make their abuse any better, but he also knows these are not my people and I have another place. So Matt, we're going to do Pardes, our four-step Jewish reading practice. Would you like to pick a sentence at random for us? Sure. All right, here's our sentence. And quarrel. Though pinning Harry to the ground with his knees, let go of his neck, and stared bewildered at his own palms, Harry could see they looked burnt, raw, red, and shiny. Ooh, that, you're very good at finding random sentences. Really? That was super yeah. random. Totally random. I love it. So step one of Pardes, we just ask ourselves what the intention of the sentence is, what, what the author is trying to get across to us. I mean, Quirrell in this moment is discovering that he cannot touch Harry. Right. Yeah. He, has, he has just gone to attack Harry at the instruction of Voldemort. And he's realizing more in confusion or disbelief than pain that he can't touch Harry. Right. Right. Yeah. He's violently attacking him. And it's the first right. time he's physically violently attacking him with his own body. He's he's like sent these ropes to tie Harry up before. Right. But this is the first time that it's sort of like man on man combat right. in this right. way. So step two, we're going to pick a, a word and track it throughout the books. Is there a word that is... Is this also random or do you just, do you choose one you like? No, you pick one that you like. Burnt. Burned. Okay. Well, so where else is there burning? I'm thinking of the cauldron that Voldemort comes out of, right? Like, Oh, right. I, I guess that isn't burning, but it's a fire. The Goblet of Fire. There's a Goblet of Fire. Yeah. Same book. Does, do things burn in that, though? Like they? Oh, yes. I don't know if they burn in the Goblet of Fire, but they burn in the book Goblet of Fire, the the dragons, right? Like they oh, shoot yes. fire and they burn the kids. That's, yes, that's right. 
And yes. again, safety concerns at Hogwarts. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, speaking of dragons, again, right, there's the dragon uh, who is breathing fire as they get out of Gringotts, right? There's yeah. the concern in this book that a yeah. dragon's fire is going to bring down Hagrid's house. That's right, yeah. Oh, there's the little ball the of fire. The little blue fire that Hermione makes, right, when they're huddled around it earlier in this book. And she lights Snape on fire. Yep. Which is what ends up saving Harry's life, right? It From Coral. That's right. Yeah. Huh. So there's a lot, actually. Yeah, there is a lot. I also, the blue light, the little blue fire, the trio like bends over and warms themselves yep. over in Deathly Hallows also. Oh, they do. That's right. So it comes right. back at the end. Nice. So yeah, fire as hearth, right? But also very much fire as threat and weapon. Yeah. Yeah. Great. Okay. So step three, what would you preach if this was your piece of text on Sunday, Matt? And Quirrell, though pinning Harry to the ground with his knees, let go of his neck and stared, bewildered at his own palms. Harry could see they looked burned, raw, red, and shiny. I think I would preach, you know, we talked about how the relationship between self and other and love, that loving yourself means loving the other. I think I would probably want to put a spin on it and say, like, if the self is relational, hate works that way, too. And that when you do violence to another, you actually do violence to yourself as well. And that's not to equate the forms of violence, right? Mm -hmm. Or to or to say that perpetrators have the same moral status as victims. Not at all. That's the last thing I want to say. But, you know, you, you compromise your humanity. You compromise who you are by harming others. And I think that, that that's that's a real effect. And we can say that metaphor played out literally with Quirrell. Quirrell tries to harm another, and he actually has some success in doing it. You know, Harry passes out at the end. But Quirrell's harming himself as well, right? Because he can't actually harm Harry without also harming himself. What would you preach on? I would preach on this thing that someone said to me in Germany that has really stuck with me. He was asking me questions about my book. And he asked me, he said, do you think that reading can actually make people better? And I was like, yes, I, I really do. And I said, do you? And he said, absolutely not. Nazis went home at night and read Schiller and listened to Bach. Culture has nothing to do with people's goodness. And it made me think of this question of how, right? I was like, well, Augustine would say you have to read toward love and you know things by its fruits. And I'm just thinking about intention in all of this. Harry is about to do violence back to Quirrell, but the intentions are so different. And therefore, that impact that you were talking about isn't quite the same, right? Harry doesn't hurt himself while hurting Quirrell because right. there's this different intention within this metaphor. Yeah. And so it just, yeah, it really stuck with me what this man said and that we really need to bring a lot of intention even to our rituals, right? I mean, even if you're just saying please when you don't mean it, we have to choose to say please, right? Yeah, yeah I think that's right. I, I also, I think there's a difference between can and must, right? Like reading can make you better. It doesn't have to make you better. It can make you worse if you do it wrong, right? And I <laughs> right. think the same example he gave is one that we can show that it can make you worse, right? Like, there is no fairy dust, right? You actually have to have intention. You have to do this with deliberation and try to be better and try to use the things you care about, hopefully they're books, to try to become a better person through them rather than depend upon them to magically make you into the thing that the world needs. Yeah. Okay, well, step four is sewed. And so I'll read the sentence and we'll just sit in silence for a second and see if this conversation has allowed our brains and our hearts to, you know, shake loose a secret. 
And Quirrell, though pinning Harry to the ground with his knees, let go of his neck and stared, bewildered at his own palms. Harry could see they looked burned raw, red, and shiny. The secret that emerged to me is that Harry, even while he's being attacked, is noticing Quirrell's suffering. And like part of that is strategy, right? He can like learn to exploit that. But it is an amazing thing to notice in this moment. I can imagine just being relieved that the hands are no longer on my neck, right? And like taking a breath. But Harry is just like always attuned to others in this way. You, Matt? There's something revealed to me in this about the capacity for hands as sort of metonyms for the human to either show affection or to do harm, right? There's so much potential for good or evil in touch. And I guess it's not a fully developed secret, but something about the image of Quirrell's wounded hands. There's just something really tragic that in trying to do violence with his hands, he also ruined the things that could be the instruments of kindness or goodness towards others as well. Yeah, I think that is a fully formed secret. I love that. Well, Matt, it's now time for our voicemail. And this week's voicemail is from Kimmy. Content warning, this call contains talk of murder and suicide. My name is Kimmy, and I am calling from Rochester Hills, Michigan. Um, I'm a longtime listener, and I wanted to thank you, Vanessa and Matt, for creating and continuing the lovely podcast and community. I wanted to call in and bless Harry, as well as my friend Josh, that passed away last week. Josh was one of my best friends throughout high school and beyond, and we started a gay-straight alliance together at our conservative high school. A lot of people from school are reaching out to me right now, and it's been very surreal. I had one conversation um, about how all three of us loved and geeked out over Harry Potter. I asked her if she knew Josh's favorite character, and she said she thought it was Harry, and sent me a photo of him dressed up as Harry for the seventh movie premiere. That felt so right to me, because Harry and Josh are very similar. Pure, brave, witty, and with strength and wisdom beyond their years. Like Harry, his amount of talent is hard to succinctly describe. And to me, our Gay Street Alliance always felt very much like the DA that Harry and Hermione started together. Unfortunately, Harry and Josh almost have too much in common, as they face more at a young age than anyone should ever have to. Josh in many ways raised himself, and one of his parents was murdered. But like Harry, what he did with his trauma was just incredible. The most striking thing about him was that he could give the most vulnerable, articulate, and compassionate speeches. He was just naturally an outstanding community leader that many of us looked up to. I think we often forget about how much people like Harry and Josh have been through because of how talented they are. So in Josh's memory, I wanted to bless the heroes who, despite their pain, never became bitter and always continued to inspire, no matter what they faced. Josh's spirit lives on in many of us, and I know that I personally have been deeply inspired by him to fight the good fight wherever I go in life. In Josh's obituary, his family suggests donating to the Trevor Project, National Suicide Prevention Hotline, or the Gay, Lesbian, and Straight Education Network, GLSEN, the last of which he served as a local chairperson and consultant. Thank you. Kimmy, thank you for your voicemail and for your really touching and moving remembrance of Josh in it. I know that our community will will hold him and you and all the people that love Josh in our hearts with care. And I'm just so sorry for your loss, Josh sounds like an amazing person. And I'm glad that he was your friend and you were his friend. I just want to echo that, Kimmy. Thank you so much for that really beautiful voicemail. Now is the time in our podcast when we remember 
the friends and family of those in our community who have been lost to COVID-19. Joseph Snyder, 72, a father of three and a sports fan. Bess Soffer, 61, an incredible Jewish mother, community builder, and spirit. Gary W. Campbell, 66, Pa, Gramps, a Native American rights activist. Gerald Rubenstein, 86, a father and grandfather, a lover of books, art, of his beloved dog, and of a good whiskey. Paul McCaffrey, 49, father of two. Corey Westbrook, 67, a father, husband, spiritual leader, and friend. Let light perpetual shine upon all of them. So Matt, who would you like to offer a blessing for? This week, I would like to bless Paranel Flamel. I want to bless her because I feel like she has had this rich life of 600 years with Nicholas. And she's sort of just an afterthought in this chapter. And I think about the conversations between Nicholas and Paranel, them deciding to give up the stone, them deciding to go into the ground basically together. I would love to read like the fan fiction of the short story about their conversation with Dumbledore, their conversation with one another, and their last moments together. There's so much tenderness, I feel like, and so much possibility emotionally and interestingly in them. And Paranel is just a name. She's another person who died in this chapter or who's about to die, right? And I just want to call attention to her and bless her for her choice, bless her for her long life, and bless her. I love that blessing. I'm going to bless our darling Hermione for this moment. (laughs) Dumbledore gives her 50 points. And her response is, Hermione buried her face in her arms. Harry strongly suspected she had burst into tears. (laughs) I don't know what this is about, obviously. I can just imagine any number of things, right? I can imagine I was scared I broke the rules and was going to be in big trouble for this. But actually, I'm being rewarded for it. That's great. I love that moment. Vanessa, next week we're doing the wrap-up episode. Do we choose a theme for the wrap-up episode? No, we don't pick a theme. We talk about what we notice when we're considering the whole book in its entirety. And I love these wrap-up episodes. I have noticed some things, so I look forward to this conversation. (laughs) I look forward to noticing things in preparation (laughs) for this conversation. You've been listening to Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find listeners who are discussing the episodes in the Facebook Common Room. Join our local groups and come and join the community of people supporting us on Patreon. You can leave a review for us on Apple Podcasts. And please send us a voicemail with your blessing. We are a Not Sorry production. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We're edited and produced by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong. Our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. And we're distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Kimmy for her beautiful voicemail this week. Molly Baxter, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Trakyle, and Stephanie Paulsell. And of course, everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones. Thanks, everyone, and we'll talk to you next week. like to say, Matt, 
is an old middle-aged man and he's still growing. Let that be an inspiration to you all. It's an inspiration to me, Matt. Well, you're welcome. As a young person. (laughs) As a young, almost 40-year-old, I can still grow. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.